Well, hello, Jacob. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great. Well, I have a question for you. Okay. What does student-centered instruction mean to you, and how do you maintain that notion in a hybrid or face-to-face online model? Oh, man, you weren't kidding when you were going to drop the question today. (laughs) What does student-centered instruction mean to me? So when I think of student-centered, and when I'm looking at my classroom, I'm trying to make everything I do not about something else. So I'm looking at them and I'm going, what do they need today? What is it that my students today need me to do to move them further into their learning and reading and writing and thinking and pretty much everything else? So student-centered means that rather than just looking at data on a test, I think about the kids and what that data means for them rather than just looking at what they hand me and what the end product is, I think about, okay, what's the process we have to go through with each of these kids? I think a student-centered classroom is about thinking about what students are interested in, what, about what, what drives kids, um, and not just kids in general, but like your kids, the specific kids in your room, you know, like, and all the way down to small stuff like culture of the classroom. So, good example is I, I play music at the beginning of every class period and I have the loudest speaker on my hallway. So I'm blaring it into the halls, right? All these kids are walking in line with their mask on. And you know what? I get a couple of them to dance in the hallway because just because we're wearing masks and social distancing and being super safe doesn't mean we don't get to have a little fun, Ochoa. So I'll turn up that music, but I don't always play music that I'm particularly interested in, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes I turn on the stuff that I know and the stuff that I actually like, but a lot of the times I'm playing music that's relevant to them because I know that that energy is going to fuel them into my space. It's going to get them engaged. Um, and that, that is a small piece of student centered engagement and student centered classroom. It's me looking at my students and going, not what does the curriculum want me to do? Not what does my principal want me to do? What is it I need to do in order to reach them where they are right now? And this extends into the blended classroom because I know that when kids log on to Canvas, which is our district LMS learning management system, they are they have tons of classes and there's tons of teachers using programs. They're using all kinds of different lessons and these kids are bombarded with all this information. And I've tried to make my lessons very simple in the sense that they know that they're going to get the standard. They know that they're going to interact with their craft and draft books. And they know there's going to be some type of video that I do. So the other day on Friday, I started my video playing guitar and I was like kind of a dork and just kind of had fun with it for a second. Um, Just because I knew that by doing that, I'm going to help. I'm going to lower their affective filter. I'm going to lower their resistance to anything that's happening in my classroom. And I think that's really the fundamentals of being a student-centered teacher, being a student-centered classroom is kind of not ignoring everything else, but everything else is secondary. The first thing is what are we doing for kids? Welcome to Craft and Draft with Jacob Chastain and Pam Ochoa. Today we're going to be discussing, I think, (laughs) the way we started our year out with our units and stuff. I, I really want to know, Jacob about your planning. I want to know what challenges, just on regular planning, if it was just a regular year, what kind of challenges do you have and how do you deal with those when you're creating a unit for your students? And man, I got to tell you, and I think I've mentioned this on the show a little bit is, and I think you, I think this is something that we've talked about before, but it's like Mm -hmm. doing digital learning and kind of a blended model, which we have going currently is, Half the battle is looking at what I want to do and going, okay, um, what does this look like in person? And then spending the next eight hours figuring out what it looks like digitally <laughs> in a way that <laughs> that, uh, that works and that's not too much. And like that's what I was doing earlier today was I was literally staring at my computer off and on going, okay, I know what I want to do this week. I have no idea how to split this up digitally in a way that's kind of coherent because a lot of it is kind of because we're going to be going into for this week is kind of the end of our six weeks so we wanted to do some heavy I want to do some heavy like revisions because my kids have been writing a lot they've been reading a lot and I kind of want to use some Abido strategies 
and kind of get them into just that revision process so they have some more tools in their toolbox and that way we can have better conversations about revision. I want to do that this week. A lot of that is so dependent on face-to-face for it to work well. And you're an Abydos trainer, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, if we're... Like when we like if we do like just a simple strategy like pointing, right? Just kind of showing what's good in a piece and kind of going around the blocks, kind of build confidence with everyone. You can do it digitally, but it's it's different digitally, and that's the tricky part in how I'm kind of approaching this week. Um, but but it has to get done. I don't know. I mean, you're the you're the Abydos expert among both of us, and I know you're using Abydos strategies online. But do you find yourself struggling to translate it digitally, or have you? Do you have the secret? No, I struggle just like everybody else. Uh, but we did do point. You brought up pointing, and I did pointing on Friday with my yeah. on with my honors class, and it went really well. Now I have an on level honors class, and uh, we probably aren't going to do it till Monday or Tuesday because. Trying exactly trying to get them to really understand what I want, but what I've chosen to do. One of the things about sharing in that Abydos way, or anyway, I I have found that the students who are the authors, and I call them my authors. They were actually I let them vote. I said, "Do you want me to call you students? Do you want me to call you writers? Or do you want me to call you authors?" And they all went well, we want to think of ourselves as authors. And I said, well, then that's what we are, you know, like that. So it's kind of cool. But anyway, so my authors, uh, they get to read their pieces and they have to read them twice. And that's the thing that's kind of different for some. Uh, we have a tendency to say, oh, it's okay. Or for the sake of time, we say, well, we don't have much time. So we just read it once. That's okay. And that's not a good move in the sense that, um just take the time and let the kids read it twice. The authors need to read it twice because when they're reading it the first time, they catch themselves making those mistakes. But then they read it a second time, and then the listeners are listening to it, and that's how that mm-hmm. works. And then when they listen to it the second time, they start giving them that feedback you're talking about that 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 really helps the the author. So it, I thought it was very successful. And now how did I do this online? So, so I, that's how you do it in class face to face. At least that's most of it. It's not the entire strategy, mm-hmm. but I had the same problem you did. How do I make this, <laughs> you know, how do I make sure they read it twice? I mean, yeah. you know, to me, cause I, I really do think that's very important. So what I've done is they have to record their audio they don't have to show me their face, but they have to record their audio once, and they have to say, this is my first reading, and then they read their piece. Then they do their second reading, and they have to say in there, this is my second reading in the audio, and then that way I know it's two different, it's not a copy, at least that's my dream. And yeah. uh, and so then they read it the second time. Uh, it's not as smooth because you don't have that face. To, there's just something about putting them together face to face. However, so then we're putting that on a discussion. So they're in a group, in a digital group, and the people in their group have to listen to both recordings. Mm-hmm. That I just have to trust them to do. I don't know how to hold them accountable for that. But upon the second one, they start giving the feedback. And they're going to give it through a discussion reply uh, posting mode. Is right. there another way? I don't know another way right know. now. Well, and that's – see, and you saying like having them record themselves read it, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> like that wasn't <laughs> even – that wasn't even in my idea. Uh, but it's it's such a good – I mean it's I mean it's – it's a good strategy. One, I mean, it's good. You know, it's always good to listen to kids read in general. So you kind of get that, but you also, um, it's a good way for them to, you know, hopefully, you know, mitigate whatever, you know, and it's, it's always a a tight rope to walk between requiring kids to do something and then trying, trying not to kill what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cause we, we almost die on the hill of accountability, uh, so much that will ruin stuff by trying to make something too accountable. But I think what you're doing, I think that's a nice balance. And I know just you as an educator that you're presenting it in a way that's not punishment. Like you have to do this two times. And if you don't, you get a zero, you know, like, right. No, it's, it's more like I explained to them why I want them to do it two times. I said, you know, 
first of all, I want this to be a safe environment for you. Do we really have to share, they ask? And I said, well, not as a whole class. That's why I put you in groups, and I put you in groups specifically with what I feel like you need. And so I think that's that. I try to keep it student-centered. And they're like, oh, okay. And then I talk about how all, you know, we write to be heard. Yeah. Really, we do. I mean, I can't remember exactly which one said this, but, uh, you know, writing is not an isolated act. And I know somebody great said that, and right now the name escapes me. But it's not a, an isolated act. In other words, it's a social act. Yeah. And so I, I talked to the students like that, and I said, and how, you know, so we're not, nothing negative allowed. Not allowed to say anything bad at all about it. Right now, we're going to point out. So I try to build confidence first. When it was all over, I do a debrief, and I'm like, so, so Friday, I said, so how did this help you? What I mean, what did y'all think about this piece? And this one, this one uh, boy who was kind of nervous about sharing, he goes, well, they thought it was funny, and I thought was wanting it to be funny. So I think I'm funny. And so it was just kind of neat that he, you know, what he really wanted to do, they got. So I think it does build confidence, but you don't do it with the whole group. You got to put them in smaller groups first with people they trust. Yeah. You know, I think I feel like half of this, like a a podcast experience that we're doing with craft and draft is going to be me sharing how I'm slowly getting better at having kids share because it's for some reason it is just not natural in my wheelhouse to do that. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. it's it's weird to me like analyzing my own teaching because I love sharing what I do. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm not quiet about any project I ever do ever. Um and you know what I mean? Like <laughs> when teach mm-hmm. we teacher started, I was like, "Hey guys, I have a podcast, 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 podcast." And I just share it all the time, you know, and like all the way down to like even the food I eat. I'm like, "I'm eating this for this week, guys." Like I share every idea I ever have, almost too much. But in the classroom, I don't approach I don't approach it that way for some reason. And I'm not it's not like I'm afraid of it. Like I'm not afraid to let kids do that. I understand why mm-hmm. it's important. Um, I've done it before, so it's not like I avoid the activity, but I have to consciously go, okay, so now let's let's kind of share. Like even down to something like a simple strategy like Penny Kittle where she talks about like, you know, sharing quote unquote beautiful words where it's like, you know, at the end of a writing oh, session, yeah. kids pick a line to share and they just you just go real quick, kind of real cross and just listen to the language of students. Um right. and they read it out loud and I've done that before, but it's one of those things. It's almost like a debrief at the end of a workshop session where the debrief is often when I skip. Uh, If if I'm going to skip something, it's usually the debrief. But I don't know. Did you struggle with that over time? Like, is that is that unnatural to you, too? Or do you lean into it a little bit more? Well, it's kind of funny on the opposite of you. I'm not really you're you know, when it comes to social media and all that stuff, I'm a little nervous about sharing. I don't, I'm not the one that's going to go out there and share my stuff usually. Mm-hmm. So you have, you have pulled me out of my, <laughs> <laughs> my little uh, hole I've got here, you know, my little whatever reclusive yeah. moment. But when it comes to being able to uh, share in the classroom, yeah, I think, I think when I first started, I was so worried that I would hurt the children in some way, you know, that, I mean, they don't yeah. want to share. I didn't want to share. I'm not going to make them share. But then what happened is, again, I took the Abydos, and that was one of the things that we did about every other uh, other day as we shared through the entire thing. And they have different strategies in the Acts of Teaching, which is a book that uh, Dr. Joyce Carroll and her husband, Eddie Wilson, wrote. And, um, and that's the... That's kind of like our textbook, so to speak. But anyway, um, in there, they just have certain techniques that they use or certain principles. And I think that the, by learning those principles and over time, just uh, doing it over and over, I've gotten better. I think it's because I see the strength in it. Mm-hmm. I've done it to the point where the kids, I, I see them change. 
And it's just, it's like I told you, we always bring Kleenexes because most yeah. usually somebody, I didn't have anybody cry though. I didn't have any criers this time. Can I tell you? Yeah, you go ahead. So that last, so for people just see behind the curtain. So the way we kind of do this is I kind of edit the audio. Uh, Pam kind of, she writes the blurbs and everything. And then the title either comes from the blurb or kind of just like one of the main sections of the podcast. And I almost named last week's episode, uh, the power of puppies and sharing, um, or, or puppies and sharing or something like that, because it was so much. And I had the, I, I had it, the picture with the, with the acute dog and everything. But then I was like, you know, I guess, I guess we'll talk about how paper is king, um, a little bit, but that was, that was, that was title number one. And then I revised uh, it for, for some <laughs> SEO purposes, but anyway, keep well, going, keep going. Another reason why revision is stronger. I mean, something yeah. that keeps you strong now that, uh, but no, yeah, you did, the principles are, they need to, to me, the principles of any sharing and you can make up your own. It's gotta be safe. It's yeah. gotta be a safe share. The kids have to, feel comfortable you know we do have some that have ieps that don't allow them to share so i think that's where the video kind of came in because in the past i would say well go ahead and video yourself and i'll listen to it and you can only share it with me so i I just wanted them to because you know when you read your writing right and then that when you're reading it you're like wait i didn't know i missed that whole entire phrase i didn't even put it in there but as a right you know it's in there so you make those corrections and so you don't, the students have to read their own writing. They don't give it to somebody else to read for them because it's theirs still. It's theirs until they send it out. I mean, your writing is your writing until you get yeah. it published, is it not? Yeah. So you want it. So you, so I want to let them keep control as long as possible before I take over. And so they share it, but I do want them to share it twice. One, so they can make kind of corrections. Another reason for that is so that the listener can listen. And it also models reading twice. You know, we always tell them if we're going to close read, we have to read and then reread. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what you're doing is you're actually practicing reading it once. And then through the reread, you get to pick up on what you want to say. So then the kids can jot it down. They can now analyze it. And at first, we, we start off with, with very safe, but they graduate depending on, like you said at the beginning, what the kid, kids need, it graduates to more sophistication as you go, depending on the kind of pieces and the maturity level of writing where your kids are, the sophistication. So it can get as analytical or critical as you want as far as a critique. Mm-hmm. But, but you start out positive. And then you make sure. everybody share it twice, and they all have to give feedback. And the feedback, when you're talking about that... Uh, Penny Kittle talking about the gift of words. Well, the Mm -hmm. gift that that listener has to their author is this is my feedback to you. And then they actually hand the feedback to the kids, to their, to the authors. And then the kid, the, the authors keep that feedback with that piece of writing is how I do it. So, yeah. So, I mean, I like to do it more in class, but it is time. It does take a day. You can't just sit there and you can't speed it up. Yeah. Do you use it for like a whole, like, do you keep it within like the confines of a mini lesson or would this be something that goes beyond like the 15, 20 minutes of a mini lesson? Well, it's to me, the mini lesson is me giving them the directions. So my mini lesson in this case is a procedural mini lesson. And so it's where the mini lesson is telling them why we're doing this, how we're going to go about doing it and what I expect from them in the end. And then I say, let's go. I'll be walking around and I'll be listening in. If you need any help, let me know. And I walk around and I listen in. And um, it's really neat to the kids. They, they just, it's just beautiful. I just think it's probably my most exciting day because I'm, I'm just sitting there listening to the kids. And it's just, to me, it's just a symphony. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, but all these kids sharing their writing and all that. Now, and on level, you know, I have some kids that are, are, you know, when that don't speak English, we already talked a little bit about that, but they're mm-hmm. writing, they're writing. I mean, it might be the same sentence over and over, but that's writing. And so I might let them, sh- you know, put them carefully with students that at least have somebody who can speak their language, if, if that's possible in their yeah. group, somebody they feel safe with, uh, not, but somebody who speaks English, they, they don't need to be with other people that have the same level of language that they do. They need to have somebody who, has been where they're at so they can understand 
And so I kind of just survey my kids. You know, that reminded me of two things that happened recently. Well, one happened in the past, one happened recently. So I was conferring with this group and, um, yeah, well, you know, my, my conferences almost always start with like the individual and if the conversation's good, Mm -hmm. everyone else at the table starts listening, you know what I mean? And then it becomes, it almost becomes like a group. Uh, conference and man, I've had so many good ones. Like I could, we could probably do a whole episode on like just conferring notes. That's actually a good idea for an episode, by the way. <laughs> okay, just the, the, <laughs> what we what we the notes that we take during a conference. Um, oh yes, that would be that, good. That'd be really valuable. But so I'm sitting with this group and I'm sitting with this one girl. She's writing. I had her last year, right? For everyone that's just joining us, I looped up with my kids. So like I've had a whole year of experience with most of my students. Um, she writes, she, like, she's a romantic, right? So everything she writes is like a love poem of some kind or something like that. And that's all the music she listens to. She listens to predominantly Spanish music. Um, and so she will, she loves the, the strategy of kind of borrowing a line from one of her songs and then using that to kind of fuel what she's writing. She did that with a recent piece. She had a, it was a line. I don't remember the line exactly, but it was something like, um, I'm high in the sky. I'm I'm in a different universe or something like that. It had it had something to do with the universe. And I go, oh, is this one of the lines that you took? Because it was a little different than all of her other stuff. So I was like, I was like, oh, this must have been the line she borrowed. You know what I? So <laughs> I go, I go, is that is that one you took? And she goes, yeah, sort of. And I go, what do you mean, sort of? I was like, yeah, you took it, you did. And she was like, well, in Spanish, I kind of did take it, but. I didn't know the direct translation. And then another girl that was sitting next to her is also um, bilingual. And she goes, well, what line is it? And then they told each other it. And then the other girl translated a little bit differently, but it had something. It wasn't, it wasn't the universe. Like, it was like an entirely different word to me. And then I go, oh. oh. I was like, how? I was like, so how is that connected? And she was like, well, there's not really a direct translation. So this is kind of the way I'm using it. And like, it was like, I was just sitting there like, I was like literally being taught by two students kind of about the intricacies of language and translation and how they're borrowing language in different languages to create different meanings. And I was like, that's really fascinating. Like, well, I was like, I, I, <laughs> I took like a, like a whole page of notes just kind of all on this because it was because what it reminded me of. And this is the second story is I've had students who, you know, their whole like school career of being, you know, if they've come here from another country or like a lot of their parents, like they don't speak English, like they're like one of the only Spanish speakers or English speakers in their house. So when they go home, they primarily speak like Arabic or Spanish or whatever language they speak. Um, I've had those kids, I've told them that they can write uh, in their language, like in their home language and and embrace it and stuff like that. All I ask is that they kind of translate it for me so I can read it a little bit um, and be able to talk to them. And they're, they're always okay with it. They're fine with the translation. And um, some of them need each other's help to translate it a little bit because, as that first story said, that it's a little bit more complicated than just one-to-one. Um, but empowering kids to not only use their language but embrace their home language and embrace, like, their culture, embrace where they came from and stuff like that, like, you really get interesting pieces. And I learn, I've learned so much about, like, different countries just by letting my students have that freedom um, and it's, and, but I've also helped kids who like English language learners who they're not very proficient in English, right? Like you said, they're writing like kind of like the same sentence over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. I've had students grow over a year because that's kind of where they started and then they got more comfortable and then they spoke more and then they shared more and then they wrote more and then spoke more and then they read more and it just kept going and going. And then by the end of the year, you know, they have really interesting pieces that are from different perspectives that couldn't be written by anyone else. And I think right. like that, there's nothing more energizing than when a student is allowed to embrace their uniqueness and whatever that uniqueness is. And then you end up with like this incredible piece that you get to talk through. And I'm like, I could have never, ever found a piece that did what you did and what you wrote to, to show you, you know what I mean? Like I could have never, it doesn't, I have all the resources in the world. I have access to the internet, you know, like I'm very well versed in everything, but the, the, the uniqueness you get by letting students go after what they care about to embrace their culture, to embrace their language. Like it's, it's so rich. Like, like you said, it is, it does become like this unique symphony that like every class is different. My first block is entirely different from my second block, but it energizes me just the same. But that that in that language play is really fascinating. 
Not really is, and I had you made me think of something that happened just Thursday. But anyway, uh, I had that little girl. I'm, I'm working with her. Mm-hmm. I have several. I have a few in there, and I have some that are they're at different stages. Some some speak both languages really well, and some are. I'm finding out that they've they they they've got their speech, but they don't have the writing. So they just sat there and smile at me. <laughs> and I go over there and I'm like, oh, you have a dad. So, uh, but anyway, with all that said, I have a, a large population and in, in there. Most of them are Spanish speaking. So this little girl that's probably the one that has the least language, she, I said, share about your special day, you know, and then I, I will say things like, you know, I asked my other speaker, how do you say, you know, como se dice, whatever it is. And so they already know I'm willing to try their language. And that's all I ask. You try mine, I'll try yours, and together we'll learn. It's kind of my attitude there. And it's served me well over the years. But so her special day was her mom's birthday and uh, Christmas. Now, thank goodness that I knew what those two words were, which is why I knew what was in her, I mean, in Spanish, because that's all she said, you know, my special, special, whatever it was, uh, Navidad and all that. I said, oh, so Christmas is your special day and Compliano's your birthday is, you know, and then I said, so now, right, tell me what you eat on those days. And so, of course, she brought up tamales. Well, then I have another girl over there going, tamales, now I'm hungry. Mrs. Ochoa, that's not fair because I'm now hungry. Well, you know, I like picture books and trade books, right? So I go over there, and what do I have? Gary Soto's Too Many Tamales, and I stop the whole class, and we read a story about too many tamales. And I mean to tell you, that whole group, they were all like, oh, that happened to me. I mean, they all made that connection, but if they haven't done anything, they know I care about them and their culture, and I will stop a class to uh, take care of it. But the, but the thing is, what was our first... Uh, story that we were supposed to read was Gary Soto's seventh grade. So I forgot that he's the one who even uh, wrote that book. And I, I go, yo, it's Gary Soto. And they were like, oh, he wrote the jacket. He wrote seventh grade because we've already, they already yeah. kind of have that uh, behind them. So they felt like really smart, some of them. So what cool. a, what a giant in, in literature terms. I mean, every teacher I think knows Gary Soto and mm-hmm. uh, like, it's, it's phenomenal. Like those teachers who are those writers who reach that level of just like, pervasiveness in the in like literature of that teachers use like it's wild but mm-hmm. um yeah you know i want to i i spent some time one of the things i love to do on my instagram is i share student writing you know when i share it i always block out their names and stuff like that but okay. you know i share I, sh- I share their words and their their pieces that they publish and i shared about four today on my instagram and i've added it to I know you're not an Instagrammer, but there's a thing that you can do to where, like, well, you can I, pick. I'm becoming one. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but there's there's a, a, a spot on, like, my Instagram's homepage. There's, like, a little button that you can basically add, and I can add anything. And you can do it, like, a lot of, like, speakers, for instance. They'll do, like, all their, like, speaking quotes or whatever they'll put there. Or a lot of teachers will put, like everything for their reading instruction. They just do that and they put it all there. So I have a writing one for my students. One, because, um, a lot of their parents follow me on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of, a lot of them follow me and like, you know, it's, it's kind of cool because they know that, you know, I have a mild like teacher platform and people listen and, and watch and stuff like that. So I love sharing the work, but I also love to share it kind of as a model just to be like, like, uh, against the this idea that kids won't write that kids don't write good stuff and i shared four pieces today that blew me away just as their writing teacher and and seeing what we're working on and i still have a lot of kids writing in poetry which bodes well for me from last year that i really i mean we honed in on poetry man like we really like last year uh, just channeling everything Nancy Atwell I could in terms of like reading poetry and, and trying to find poems of all different genres. Like we read informational poetry, we read old school poetry. We read, I mean, we literally, we read all of it, right? We read story poetry and that just, my students found so much comfort in reading poetry because it's, uh, you can do it faster, right? So you can reread a poem, you know, depending on the length, like 10 times, five times, three times, um, right. and dive into it deeper. But it also freed them from these artificial constraints of grammar, 
Um, not the fact, not to say that grammar is not important, but uh, you can play with grammar a little bit in poetry. And what I found was trying to get my students to write volume. That if I just got them to play with poetry a little bit, um, we could work on the grammar once they had the volume. But if my kids were never writing, I was never none of the grammar stuff that I wanted to teach them would stick. Right. We did so much poetry. So this year starts a lot of my students are still writing poetry and some of it is very good. And I got to tell you, I know they've been reading over summer because, I mean, I was blown away by some of this stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know what happened. Like, I remember you at the beginning of sixth grade and like you were, you know, it was just so it was broken and there was no depth. But like, I mean, and writing about like deep concepts, too, and. So this whole first six weeks, you know, I was kind of, we worked on a lot, but I'm trying to bring my honors kids into a more symbolic way of thinking because cognitively, you know, neuroscientists basically have showed us that like middle school is where the abstract starts happening based on your age group. And I mean, there's other variables, but sixth grade, you're still kind of concrete. And then as you move up from there, you start getting a little bit more abstract. And for my seventh grade kids, I was like, I wonder how far... I can push some of this abstract thought. So we did a couple, we read the first page of Scythe, which talks about, um, they have these robes that they, that the Scythes wear and, um, they compare them to, um, Renaissance angels and the Scythes get to pick their colors for their robes. And then we watched, uh, Plato's cave and we analyzed what that meant. And then we read, um, the Scarlet Ibis, which have you ever read that short story? Uh, okay. Well, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you've already got the theory of the forms. You've already gotten Scarlet Ibis. Oh, my gosh. When that, yeah, the little baby was born. <laughs> oh, I could bring those. I taught it in the ninth grade. It was in my ninth grade curriculum when I first uh-huh. started teaching. It was in our ninth grade anthology. And so we had to read the Scarlet Ibis. And, of course, you know, I was coaching back then when we first. So you brought up a memory is what you did. So, anyway, we were teaching. Uh, I, I was coaching. And when I coached, I mean, it was in high school. So I did varsity volleyball. You know, I was a JV, uh, J, uh, her assistant. So we were. I was getting up at six in the morning, or getting at school at six. I was going to going to home at eleven. I was raising my kid and all this stuff. You think I had time to pre-read these stories? No. So here I am. <laughs> we're all gonna read. <laughs> Scarlet. <laughs> okay, you already know what happened. So we're reading the Scarlet Ibis, and I, you know, my son is, you know, he's little, he's a little yeah. boy, and and you know, I'm already emotionally drained because his dad, you know, it's a, a personal <laughs> situation there, but I'm now single. So anyway, here we are, emotional year. I didn't have time to read it. So I say, let's read this together. And this was before Abydos. I mean, like I'm, I haven't done all the Abydos stuff. I'm still new in this, in the trenches. And I'd be when when they go out there and they out there in the, in the woods and, and, you know, the sad part of the story. And I just Uh start boohooing. I mean, I let it go. Here I am, a bunch of ninth graders, and I lose it. I, I don't know how I kept my job, <laughs> but it was over the Scarlet Ibis. So after that, I'll let other people read it from here on out for the last next four years that we had it. Because that's so funny. Oh, you know, that one brings for, me to tears. For people that don't know the story, I mean, it's pretty intense. Um, it is. It's it's almost like a short story version of uh, of Mice and Men, right? Like a little bit. Like they share yes, similar it is. themes. It is. It is similar. Um, and which is probably why it was in your ninth grade curriculum because uh, mice and men is usually like sophomore junior ish, right? Junior, yeah, I taught yeah. it in the junior year. <laughs> yeah, and it's you yeah. know mice and men's a, it's far more intense than this short story, but well, it's a full novel. But yeah, yeah, and there's different themes and stuff like that. But there's it, it there's tons of symbology. It's a great story to read for foreshadowing. I don't suggest anyone do it in a, in a class that isn't advanced. Um, right. I felt. I felt comfortable doing it because I had taught the kids last year and we had read some advanced stuff already and they were showing they were they were eager to do something kind of challenging. So I just kind of threw it out there just to see what happened. And it fit my want for symbolism and kind of abstract, like using a story to argue a a different point almost. Um, So we read that and kids. I mean, they loved it. We had I mean, they had such great conversations. I had kids. I. Uh, that were like ranting, you know what I mean? About like different oh, yeah, things. 
going too far. How can, how did he not know to go? Yeah, I can see. Yeah. Well, it was also like the question of away from home. Yeah. I mean, the two questions that came up um, in my two main blocks, the, there were huge questions and these spawned so many pieces after that. But the first question was, um, because you do something bad, does that mean you are a bad person forever? Okay. Um, right. It's like we all we've all made bad choices. Are we all summed up by our bad choices for the, for the rest of eternity? And that was interesting for seventh graders to grapple with because a lot of kids brought up examples. Um, they were on both sides. I was I wasn't trying to argue either point. I was facilitating their discussion and poking holes in their arguments as I deemed fit. Um, and then the next one was our because if if I do something good. Because I'm guilty, does that mean the good thing I did is less valuable? And talk about huge questions for seventh graders to grapple with, right? I mean, this is stuff that... Questions for anybody. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is stuff that... like There's no answers to these things, right? There's only debates and and uh, kind of beliefs that we fall to because of rationality or, or one way or another. But, like, we still... To say that there's one right answer... Um, there's really not. So having kids do that, this, these conversations through this story and having those two big questions, um, we did a brainstorming session about what, what are, what are stories we could tell symbolically about these two questions and kids ran with it, man. And they were, they were rolling. And this is like at all stages too, because just because I want to make it clear, like I teach honors. So pre AP, if people aren't familiar with that term, um, I mean, they're, they're advanced kids, but, uh, but they're not, we don't have like, it's not like a group of kids that are like elite, right? A lot of them are just hard workers. So they get in there. A lot of them are really strong readers. A lot of them are strong writers, but not strong readers and vice versa. Um, some of them aren't strong in anything. They just really want to be in the class. Like there's no, like there's no, uh, it's not just like a pure, like these kids have like super high IQs or all the time. Right. So like these conversations, it inspired so much of just deep discussion and kids really questioning stuff in their writing. And when I was walking around like two days later, cause at, okay, so hang on, let me back up. So the next day to, to cause we tackled uh, symbology, like symbolic meanings in story. We tackled setting. We talked about author's purpose. We talked about theme. We put all this together. And then the next day, I know I'd been pretty heavy with the Scarlet Ibis. So we read a, a, an excerpt, <laughs> an excerpt from Linda Reeve from her quick rights book called, uh, when I was young at the beach. And it's just, a it's really basic. It has a great form. And what we did is we did a right beside the text. So I had them glue it on the left side of their craft book. And on the right side, we wrote next to it. And as we, we read it first and then we analyzed just the structure of it. So she repeats when I was young at the beach for three paragraphs and then she changed it in the last paragraph. Um, and it's kind of like a personal narrative. It just talks about like her experiences at the beach, how much she loves it and taking all of that thought that happened for about a week and a half and then molding it with this short, uh, little excerpt that kids were just modeling a, a short piece after. I mean, I had so many, that just raised their hand. Like I spent all day just kids raising their hands. What I mean to read their stuff, uh, because they were so fired up because what, what essentially what I did on accident, I didn't plan it this way. I want that to be very clear. Um, that I, this was, this was an accident of just seven years and just experience happening at once, which was we, I've loaded their brains with information and ideas and thoughts and questions and beliefs and everything else. And then I gave them a structure and then I said, go. And they just went. And it was like, I was like, man, I really need to do this more often. I really need to pair intense reading or like something that really inspires them to think with a structure of writing a model, right? I'm not telling them what to write. I'm not controlling what they wrote. I didn't even tell them to write paragraphs, but they did it naturally. And it was, I mean, it was just a recipe for like greatness. And so many of the kids, what they're publishing this six weeks is that piece that we did with all of that combined. And I was like, man, I don't even, it was just, it was like an accident. Don't steal it. <laughs> and I might even cry more now. Cause you know, I just need to read a page and I'm done. <clears throat> yep, so I've seen, uh, I've seen it. I tell them, I know you have, that's why I said that. <laughs> The more life that happens, the more tears they fall. But anyway, I tell the kids that right off the bat. I'm like, y'all need to know. You'll be there one day. 
So, but I have a similar experience. I don't know if it's identical, Mm -hmm. but again, ninth grade, this was probably the second year, the second year that I implemented this new way, this model workshop. Mm -hmm. So I finally feel comfortable going a little out on my own, so to speak, but we were still doing whole novels because that's what was expected. So my whole novel that I did this particular year was to kill a mockingbird. So that's powerful all in itself, just Uh that particular. But chapter three, I think it's chapter three, by my memory, you need to know this was a little while back, but uh, chapter three, I think it is, is where Scout had to bring a current event to her teacher and they were sharing their current events. And one of the students in the classroom brought something about the jur- the, the Jews being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Remember, I don't know if you remember that or know that. but uh, And so she, he said, why are they persecuted? And, uh, and she said, well, the teacher said, oh, it's prosecuted, not persecuted. And um, so anyway, they had confusion on, on that. But, so what I did is I coupled that with one of my picture books. I love picture books. And this one was uh, Rose Blanche, mm-hmm. old book. But Rose Blanche is based symbolically on the White Rose Society. And the White Rose Society was the group of college students that stood up against Hitler. So I read that. So I started it out with a quote from Martin Luther King. And the quote was, an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I read Rose Blanche, and then I I read or we read that chapter three, that little section, and then I said, "Okay, I want you to write." And they wrote, and it was, and they just they all wanted to share. I didn't even have to. I mean, they were all just. I can I share like you're talking about. They were all just, and I mean, it was some of the best writing uh, that I did, and that's when I think that was the. The reason that that comes to my memory when you're talking about that moment, that was the moment I think I realized this is how I need to teach because I was still new at it. And that was when I I realized that was the most powerful lesson at that time I had ever done. And it was pretty amazing. And I had ran into some of those kids. They were ninth graders. I ran into them um, out in in public after they'd graduated and they said, they still come back and they said, do you remember when you we did that lesson about Martin Luther King and injustice? I mean, they remembered it. And that was, they were already seniors. They'd already passed seniors. I mean, they were out of school when I ran into two of them one time at a restaurant. And they remembered that and said, we write, I mean, we write and we read because of that. That was the story. So it was, it's really neat when those kind of, I didn't plan it. I didn't know really how it was going to work. I was just trying something. And it turned out to be a very powerful moment. Well, and it it follows the model of the way we set up craft and draft, right? The whole, mm-hmm. you know, get your standard, get your text, analyze the text, read it like a reader, approach it like a writer, and then use the information that you're getting in your brain into your writing, right? And you can you can flip flop reading and writing, um, but it's it, the essential idea is the same, which is the literature we consume and the information we consume is what we inevitably put out. It's like my student who's listening to you know all those songs, right, and she's using that to fuel her writing. It's it's what we take in is what we put out, and if we want kids putting out something, if we want kids putting out uh, like a specific style, a specific. Um, not ideas, but specific um, thought processes, if that makes sense, right? So we're not we're not trying to indoctrinate them into an idea. We're trying to get them to express ideas on specific things. So, um, like if we want them to, like the the for advanced kids, right? For older kids, you know, there might be a time where like you question like the morality of the death penalty, and there's a million books that symbolize what that means, what that looks like, um, the different arguments on both sides, what it looks like from a victim's perspective, what it looks like from an outsider's perspective, um, taking those ideas, giving kids tools and texts that represent those ideas and then letting them roll with it in their own world is, I mean, that, that's what, that's what I did accidentally without planning it. Right. I gave kids a bunch of information, 
We talked about a bunch of different ways. I gave them a text that was powerful and affected them because as seventh graders, they'd probably never come across anything like the Scarlet Ibis before. And, and then it was, it was enough, right? It's the whole, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Spencer Kagan, the guy who made the Kagan trainings, which is, you know, kids need novelty. And I think it's true in literature. You know, if we can shock them, into interest, right? If we can shock them into engagement by showing them something they've never seen before, um, I think it means all the difference. You know, shout out to, so I don't know if you were in this training at some point. So for people, so our district, we've, over the last several years, they've uh, adopted this model, not this year because of COVID, but they've adopted this model of doing like a workshop style, uh, like PD, right? We go to the high school there's presenters and you get to kind of pick which presentations you want to go to. And, you know, they're, they're varying degrees, you know, it's just teacher sharing stuff. So some of them are like natural presenters and some of them are, and it is what it is. You just kind of get what you can. But there was one training from one teacher and I always forget his name. I wish I had it. Um, but he did, uh, a, a lesson called, uh, dang it. What's that reading? What's that poetry strategy? It's an acronym. TP cast. Yes. I knew you would know it. So he did. And so there was two sessions that day, uh, about this. One was how to use TP cast correctly in your classroom. And his session was death to TP cast is what he called this. <laughs> I, remember that. I, I did not go to that because I was presenting, but I do remember the title. I, I thought that was great. Uh, well, I just thought it was funny that we, in our district, we allowed both to happen, right? That that's why yeah. I love, that's why I love wh- where we work. Um, that's true. And our, and our content coordinator, like, I mean, they're all, it's all just amazing that we get to have these conversations and we're allowed to do stuff like that and have like these contradictory trainings almost. Um, mm-hmm. cause it's just a strategy. It's not like we're contradicting each other in practice. So, um, but the, I, so I went to his training and he, it was really good. One, I don't, TP cast isn't really a middle school thing. Um, it's definitely more high school, at least where we're at. Um, however, one thing I took from his training that I've always remembered is he was talking about how kids, you know, teachers say they don't like poetry and if you don't like it, you can't teach it well. And kids don't like poetry and poetry is kind of obtuse and all this other stuff. And he goes, well, stop showing bad poems. And then he showed us. I agree. A, well, and then, yeah, well, and then he showed us <laughs> a bunch of like weird, interesting, strange poems that I like I had never seen. Like there was one poem that it was the same line over and over again for effect, but it was, I'll have to look it up, but the line was something like, nope, not in this drawer. Is it in this one? Nope, not in this drawer. Is it in this one? Nope, not in this drawer. Is it in this one? And it did that same line like eight times. And he goes, well, what's this poem saying? And we're like, well, I can't find it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. I can't find it. It's that feeling of not being able to find something. And he goes, have we all had that feeling? And we're like, yeah. And he goes, that's what poetry is supposed to do. It, a, a lot of it just is supposed to evoke, a meaning, a purpose, a, mm-hmm. a thought or something like that. And there's no other way to simulate not being able to find something other than showing the thought process over and over again. And I was like, yeah. So like ever since then, I mean, this was like years ago. I, I ever since then, I've always approached this idea of like trying to find something that's just weird and different enough um, to shock kids into engagement. There's another poem by B- Billy Collins. I think it's called the dog. Um, but he has one about it's about this dead dog who's talking about how he hated his owner the whole time. <laughs> right. And I, I, I read it with my sixth graders last year. I mean, and it's like the dog was like, you know, when you were petting me, I just wanted to bite off your nose and stuff like that. And it's it's really interesting. But with my kids, we had the conversation of like, OK, so the dog definitely hates its owner. But why? And then we started inferring all of these things like, well, maybe the owner was mean, maybe all this stuff and just getting kids it's it's all about just like twisting the perception just a little bit, right? It doesn't always have to be like intense, like the Scarlet Ibis or something like that, but just showing something that is different can literally be that engagement maker in the classroom. And I find that when kids are less engaged, I'm just showing them something they've seen before. In all honesty, not, not necessarily the same piece, but like the same type of story, the same structure. And I, I get the most out of what I'm doing when, when I'm showing them something a little odd. Yeah. Well, I think it's because that brain craves novelty. Yeah. It, it craves being, I mean, it doesn't like to be bored. It likes to think. And I think sometimes what we do is we stop before we get to the magic. Yes. And 
what makes us stop sometimes, I think it's trying to hit that, that magic uh, schedule that we're on, you know, mm-hmm. the scope and sequence. Mm-hmm. We have to stop because we only have four days to study this. And, you know, so I think to me that's one of the biggest challenges I have is maintaining what the district expects or any district or whatever, the scope and sequence, and still being able to have this authentic uh experience for our students yeah you know before we close out today i know we're at 50 minutes already but i think we would it would be hoove or it would what it would be a miss if we did not share um our portfolio gains because we've talked about we talked about a little bit on the last episode so i figured it'd be a nice way to kind of close out this this episode of how did you set up your portfolios this week I, I did actually. We we started all that. Uh huh. All right. So yes. share share how you did it, <laughs> and then I'll share kind of how I went about it. And we can maybe, hopefully, if I, we'll either be really close together, or we'll have two different ways for people to choose from if they're wanting a way to do portfolios with blended or digital learning. Well, I went ahead and had the kids uh, create a Google uh, folder, uh-huh. and they titled it "My Portfolio." Because uh, I didn't think they had another portfolio in there, <laughs> so I figured my portfolio would be enough. And they opened it up, and then they began to put they they had chosen a piece of their own writing out of their uh, cry, uh, their draft book, and so, so they put that in there. And then we're going to have a reflection. So my reflection uh, that they're going to do is they're going to look over their piece and they're going to keep that in there. They're going to analyze their their own experience. So it's more like, why did you choose this piece? Uh, If you had, and I saw this on the internet, I was looking up for some questions, but I liked this one uh, because sometimes I, you know, I don't create my own. Sometimes I go out and look just like everybody else. And so, but this one was uh, if you had another, another week to work on this piece, what would you do differently? Mm. What would you do? So it was, it's stuff like that. So I had them, they're going to do a, but we haven't done the analysis yet. I've got it all written up, and that's one of their assignments they're going to be doing. Uh, and so what I think I'm going to do is, at first, just make it a collection of the different things that they pull out of their, uh, you know, that they're writing mm-hmm. in their draft book. And then I think what I want to do is, probably with the envelope, I liked your idea the other day when it came to, having them analyze, but they have to have some work first. So right now we're just collecting work. And then I think I'm going to have them uh, reorganize that work later. So we'll look at it in different views, but that's what I'm doing right now. So I don't know if it's all that magical yet, but it will be. Mine's similar. You know, I, uh, once again, I have the benefit. My kids had me last year, so they know how we did portfolios physically. Um, some of them didn't though. And some of them came from entirely different classes. So they were new, but the way I did it is same thing. I had them create a Google folder, even my in-person kids, um, in that folder, they just named it first name, last name, writing portfolio. And then I had them make copies. There's two things I did. So I, I still want them to create a write a writing record. Mm -hmm. So it's there. I think this idea originally came from Linda Reef's book. Um, but the whole idea of them writing down, you know, this, their, which number their piece is. So if it's their first piece, they put number one, they put the title, they put the genre and they put the date completed. Um, early on that writing record isn't that valuable, but towards December, towards February, when that starts adding up and you start seeing the different genres kids are writing in one, it's fun to like show them, but two, it's also good. Like, you know, every few months to be like, Oh, you've written, you know, a lot of, you know, like I have kids that like really love trying to write books. So they write tons of fantasy and I'm like, well, you know, let's try, let's try to publish something else. Like just to like force you kind of out of your box, just to try something new, all that fun stuff. So, um, they have that in their folder and then they have, uh, a blank writing reflection, which is their, how they assess their own writing. Cause I always want my students to, whenever they publish, I want them to reflect on the piece And then I want them to um, basically grade themselves, right? And that sounds a little intense. I'm not saying go give yourself a 90 or whatever, but they're giving themselves, they're ranking themselves on four things, which is 
they're ranking themselves on their purpose. So like, do they feel like the reason they wrote the piece was, was valid? Did they write it because I said they needed to write something or did they write it because they genuinely wanted to, um, or because they were working on an idea? Um, they grade themselves on genre conventions and, uh, grammar. So like a poem is going to have looser genre, like grammar conventions than fiction. Right. Uh, They, and then they grade themselves on the mini lessons. So, like, I always want my kids using the mini lessons that we're doing in their writing. So, for instance, if we're doing setting, if we've talked about that, then they, they want them to try some of that and use it in whatever they're writing. Um, and that kind of creates the full circle of, you know, the craft book to the draft book to the assessment, back to the craft book to the draft book to the assessment to the craft book, back, like back and forth. Um, and having them do that... Oh, and then the fourth one, sorry, is uh, evidence of the writing process. So, you know, if they give themselves a four for the writing process, that means they really did revise and edit and go through. In each of their pieces that they publish, they put their draft book page numbers on there. So if I have a kid that turns into me, this works both ways. So if a kid turns into me a paper, that's kind of rough. Um, Sometimes it's like typo issues because kids aren't used to typing up their work. Um, but sometimes I'm like, Hey, can you show me your pages in your draft book? And we go to those pages. Um, and it turns out they edited tons and they revised. Uh, but that was, that was just the best we got it right. I'm not going to judge that student on their grammar issues as harshly, if that makes sense. Right. No, it does because the process is so important. And I, you know, I, uh, Jim Delisle, I think is his name, uh, G- from the GT uh, Gifted and Talented World, he wrote a book and talked about it's very important that we do not focus on the product as much as we pro- focus on the process. Yeah. Uh, especially when we're working with GT kids, uh, because I think that's what we do is they can't ever attain. So working on this process is way more important. So to me, that's what you were doing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and that's exactly right because it works both ways because sometimes I'll be like, wow, they really did put a lot of work in. This is the best that they had, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's awesome. I approach that piece so much differently because if they would have just turned it into me and we wouldn't, I wouldn't have that evidence of their process, um, I would look at it far differently. I'd be like, oh, wow, they, they didn't use commas. They didn't do periods and all that other fun stuff. But it also works the other way. If a kid turns into something that's kind of – a little on the rough side and it turns out they didn't do any work. They just wrote something real quick and then typed it up. Um, then I get to have a different conversation of the importance of the writer process and why it's good to go back into your work and revise and edit. And these things don't just exist because it's, it's something a teacher's telling you to They exist because we want the piece to be great. And that's what ties into their purpose. If they have a great purpose, then they want their piece to be great. So me telling them, Hey, let's go back and revise this to make it better. It's a lot easier of a conversation because they like it in the first place. But yeah, so they do that when they publish a piece, they type it up and then they copy and paste that reflection under their piece. And then they tell me that it's there and I go in and we look at it together and it's really, they assess themselves and then I assess their assessment of themselves essentially. Um, and a lot of the times we agree, sometimes we don't, I have found that kids will generally grade themselves lower than they need to. Um, which is a fun conversation because I get to flip it on them and I get to go, why are you great? Why are you giving yourself a two? You use like four mini lessons in this piece, right? You use setting, you use theme, you use author's purpose and you use POV. Like this should be, <laughs> this should right. be like next level here. And it's fun to, encourage kids that way but kids liked the setting up the portfolios went well um tons of kids were already putting stuff in there i told them from now on you can publish uh whenever you want just know that and i will slowly refine and um like this next week we're gonna talk about revision for almost the entire week uh to kind of give them those skill sets but they were excited they liked the idea and i like i like the idea of having a digital because they keep these google accounts all the way up through high school so theoretically they could have a record of their writing yeah, that's that's good. Well, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to steal again. So that's two <laughs> steals. Hey, uh, but you reminded me of something I used to do. You know, when Star first came out, we, you know, you had to watch the focus, coherence, yeah, uh, organization, mm-hmm. mechanics, and voice. I don't know if you remember all that, but anyway, uh, I would take that rubric and turn it on its side, and then the kids would, and it would have a a two. I mean, a one all the way up to a four, because that was what we were trying to obtain. And yep. they would do something similar. They would they would actually color 
uh, so anyway, what they ended up creating was a bar graph. So I could see this. I could turn this on its side, and then I would do that little bar graph, and then you could visually see real fast um, how well they feel like they did. It gives a great visual. Uh, so, yeah, you reminded me of, of doing that. I might take what you've said here and turn it into a bar graph with the kids so they can actually have a visual for their work. I think that's one of the things that's really powerful. Um, like with revision, I have them underline in color, you know, from ratiocination, mm-hmm. uh, which again is the Dr. Carroll thing, but, um, that color letting them visually see is really powerful. So that's a whole nother lesson again, and a whole nother thing. That's all. On another podcast. Well, we're going to have to close it out there for everyone listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation again. We got a whole hour of just us talking shop, talking about what we're doing, sharing our stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think Craft and Drive podcast is valuable for teachers, do me a favor. Right now, as you're listening to me, go to your podcast app. You're going to hit that five-star button to let everyone know that this podcast is the one teachers should be listening to, which talks about workshop, reading and writing, and all the things that entails. Hit that five stars. If you're feeling extra, write down a review quickly. Those reviews really do help. The five stars really does help. People are always on the look for better PD and information and stuff like that. So if you believe teachers need this, then leave that rating. It really does help us so much. Join us over there on the Facebook page at Craft and Draft Workshop, which is where that's at. You can find the link to that if you don't want to search for it at craftanddraftworkshop.com, or you can find every other episode. If you're not a subscriber to the podcast, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. As soon as we drop them on Friday morning, you get the updated podcast, and it's such a great way to listen who doesn't want to listen to a podcast on friday to get you going to get your thinking going for that weekend planning to jump into all of that amazing stuff so jump in join us thank you for listening thank you for supporting our work we really do appreciate it we have more conversations coming your way every single friday so make sure you stick around follow us on all of the fun stuff facebook follow me on instagram and we're gonna get miss ochoa's instagram going but we're gonna give her a minute to get everything rocking so you can go follow her on the instagrams but until then you guys we're here for you 